Welcome to episode 39 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. We're talking about craft publishing today with my guest, Melanie Fallick. Melanie Fallick has been the publishing director of STC Craft, an imprint of Abrams, for nearly 12 years. She is proud to be publishing the works of many wonderfully creative authors, including Heather Ross, Denise Schmidt, Clara Parks, Natalie Goldberg, Keith Fassett, Lata Jansdatter, Lena Corwin, and Livia Chetty. She's also the author of several books, including Knitting in America, Kids Knitting, and Weekend Knitting. She lives in Beacon, New York, with her husband and teenage son. Melanie Fallick, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, so I wanted to kind of uh, talk a little bit about your career path. You were a French major in college and started out working in international relations as your first job out of college in Washington, D.C., before deciding to pursue publishing. So how did you get your first publishing job when you moved back to New York? Well, it's kind of it's a funny story. I, um, I decided that I wanted to work in publishing and... Um, I was living at home in New Jersey for a little while. And I remember I took the, I was taking the train from the city to New Jersey and I went to the, um, magazine stand at Penn station. Yeah, it was Penn station. And, um, just looked like which magazine would I like to work for? And I ended up picking up a copy of chocolate tear magazine, which was just what it sounds like. It was a magazine that was all about dessert and in particular chocolate. And, uh, I took the, actually it was the bus. It was the port authority. And I took the bus home and, um, and I called them when I got home after I had read the magazine on the bus. And I just said, you know, who I was and that I was looking for a job as an editorial assistant and they had a job. (laughs) And I think I went in like the next day and interviewed and then came home and they, there was a message on my answering machine that I had gotten a job. I think that's a great story because, you know, I mean, it's one thing to kind of look in the classifieds, right? Back at that time, right? You'd be looking in the classifieds to find yeah. a job and opportunity in publishing. Um, but you kind of went about it the opposite way. You were like, hmm, where should I work? Let me give them a call, <laughs> which yeah. is terrific. That's kind of how I've always done it. I mean, the story, I mean, it is funny. And now I think about it and I think like, it sounds kind of silly. Like that was my, that was what I thought my mission was to look, work at a chocolate magazine, but um, it doesn't sound that noble, but I always felt like chocolate made a lot of people happy and that was a good thing. Um, but yeah, I've always felt like if I could identify what it is that I want, that within reason, um, I could go after it better than if I was just kind of fishing around in what was available in search of something that would be tolerable. (laughs) Totally. And I actually think that's an interesting theme throughout. And we'll kind of come back to it, I think, because there's a bunch of times when that sort of figuring out what it is you're good at and then just deciding, okay, who is going to offer me an opportunity to do this kind of comes about. So, um, okay. So you worked at the chocolate magazine and worked in chocolate for a little while, and then you found, um, knitting and learned to knit. And, or, I mean, I guess you had learned to knit as a child, but really wanted to perfect knitting and got more interested in knitting and decided to seek out some opportunities to bring your love of knitting and your love of writing and editing together. So tell me a little bit about that part of the story. Well, you know, I did 
study French in college and I traveled a great deal when I was in college and then I worked in international relations for a little while. So, you know, on top of the interest in chocolate and the interest in writing and then the interest of knitting was this interest in travel and an interest in different cultures and how different cultures uh, represent themselves um, and how their cultures, how a culture evolves. And so I started knitting and I became really interested in learning about knitting in different cultures and in particular in women's stories in different cultures and how you could sort of put all that together, the stories and the culture and the history and read it through the knitting. So, um, you know, I just decided that that's what I wanted to do. (laughs) And I started pursuing different opportunities, um, to do that. So for example, I, um, I attended the very first stitches conference in New Jersey and I met the people from Rowan and they at the time had a sort of a travel agency part of their business. And they had a trip to the Shetland islands and the outer Hebrides. Um, and so I, it sounds amazing now. It was really easy. I just talked to them and I said, well, if I can get a magazine interested in an article about your trips, um, could you allow me to go without paying? (laughs) Because I absolutely could not afford to go if I had to pay. And they said, yes. And so then I did get Vogue Knitting and, um, Knitters Magazine and, and then I ended up writing interested. And then I also wrote an article for the Rowan Knitting Magazine. So, um, you know, I went there and, and did that. And then I, after that, I don't remember how much, I don't know if it was like a year later, I, um, found out about the Orienberg shawls and I contacted the women who were kind of importing them into the United States. And, um, so a Russian woman and an American woman. And then I talked to them about traveling with them to Russia in order to, um, learn about the women who make the shawls. And then I, that was right when Peacework magazine started. So I contacted them and they were interested in that story. So I did that. And then, um, after a few different experiences like that, I started looking at what was happening in knitting in this country and recognizing that knitting had a pretty bad reputation here, even though I knew or felt that it was really a wonderful thing to do. And I had met already so many fascinating people who did it. So I started, um, kind of researching that and got the idea that I wanted to do a book about people in this country, um, for whom knitting was a focus more than a hobby, but people who had make it made it kind of a priority in their lives um, in terms of their career or in terms of their art. Um, what year was this? <laughs> I'm going to sound so old. I mean, it was right. It was in the 90s, right? Yeah, it was in the 90s. Okay. Um, I ended up writing a book called Knitting in America, which came out in 1996. So this must have been okay. in about 1994. Right. So we're really talking before knitting was hip again. Yes. And I felt like I was so lucky to have discovered this kind of underground movement <laughs> And I was kind of baffled as to why it there weren't, you know, why people were still kind of hiding it. <laughs> 
And, um, and so I wanted to celebrate it. And in particular, I wanted to celebrate what was happening in this country because there was this idea that American knitwear designers and knitters were not as um, talented or skilled as their European counterparts. And I felt like that wasn't really true. And I wanted to really, I wanted to celebrate it. it you know, exposed sounds like a kind of clinical word or like it was kind of a sneaky investigation or something, but I really wanted to celebrate what I had discovered. And I remember saying then that um, I felt like women were generally kind of lonely in our culture and that when they discovered something that they, uh, they discovered an interest that they shared, they became less lonely and that that was one of the roles that knitting was playing. And I find it interesting that it took a long, long time, but now it seems like that's this huge part of the knitting movement is the social aspect of it. And yet back in 1994, I felt like it was, I could feel the beginnings of, of that, of that role for knitting. Yeah. Gosh, that's totally fascinating. And it's, you know, it, it was like um, having a, a an inkling like ravelry is on its way. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it was based on. I heard a, something on NPR where they did a they did some kind of survey, and loneliness was the biggest complaint that women had. <laughs> That's so fascinating. Yeah, and you know the the web has really opened that up for so many of us. Um, so, so how did you identify, you traveled for knitting in America, you traveled around the country with a photographer and you stayed with different people for whom knitting had become a center part, central part of their lives and got their stories for the book and took their photos. Mm-hmm. But how did you find them? Like, was it word of mouth? Did you know people who knew people? I mean, back at that time, right, you weren't searching the web. So how did you come across these people? Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of easy. And in retrospect, I have to say it seems sort of daunting and I'm not an especially outgoing person. So it's not like, and I think, wow, I just kind of did that. Like I just called people blindly. Um, but I do remember I went, I first, I went to my local library and I wanted a list of like all the knitting books that they had. And, um, I remember the librarian was asking me why I was doing this and I was printing out too many pages and, <laughs> and it wasn't just all the books they had. I think it was all the books. It might've been in their system or in print. And she was mad at me and I said, Oh, well, I'm going to write this book. I want to write this book. So I'm doing this research. And she just gave me this look like, yeah, everybody's writing a book. She completely <laughs> didn't believe me. I always wanted to go back there with the book and say, see, yeah, totally. I really did that. But, um, you know, I just, I looked at books, I looked at magazines. Um, and I, as I said, I went to the first stitches and, um, or I guess it was the, then it wasn't the, it was the first, it might've been like the second one. And I, I just kind of called people on the phone and said what I was doing. And I, I think once, you know, the first few people agreed to do it, then it opened a door. And I, I remember, I don't remember the exact order that I called people, but, um, I do remember calling Kristen Nicholas at classic elite. And I remember meeting her the first time at stitches and she was, very interested in being part of it. And I remember I called Nora gone 
and she was interested and um, Deborah Newton and, you know, they were all friends and Pam Allen. And, and then um, I called Meg Swanson just, <laughs> which, you know, it seems she's, you know, such a big deal and, and has played such an important role in knitting culture for such a long time. And but I, I, I don't remember being scared. I just thought what I, I really believed in what I was doing. Right. So I was able to do that. And then it was, I had been to Lalana Wool's in Taos, New Mexico. And, um, I called there because I really liked her yarn or naturally dyed yarns. And then she told me about some people and, you know, it was just one after another, but it was kind of like a lot of it was old fashioned, you know, like looking in a magazine and then looking in the phone book. And just having, having the guts to make the call and also just have like having an idea strong enough to carry the whole work, you know, to carry the project from beginning to end and to continue to motivate you to convince people that it was worth participating in and worth hosting you in their homes. And, you know, so, um, the, the strength of the idea, I think was, was, yeah. And it was, it it was, it was such a different time. I mean, first of all, the people, a lot of the people I was calling, um, you know, really were excited about this new platform for what they did. And, um, you know, they, there was no internet really to speak of that, you know, where people were meeting each other. And so, um, this, it seemed like an exciting new thing. And, and I really feel like the project was, um, kind of magical. Like it was under a magic spell because just about everybody I contacted, um, was really happy to be part of it. Um, and you know, just welcomed me into their homes and, um, and made it really easy and not that many things in life happen that way. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's almost like it's magic. So, um, so when you, when the book came out, um, you went on a a book tour Mm -hmm. and, um, and it did extremely well. I mean, it's, it's one of these books that sort of everybody seems to have. Um, and, so you said before that that book, Knitting in America, it really puts you on the map in a lot of ways. So what effect do you think that um, writing that book at that time had on your career? Like what happened after that? Well, yeah, it had a big effect because it was this beautiful calling card. <laughs> I mean, at first I it allowed me to meet a lot of people who – um, played a big role in the knitting world at that time. And then, um, and then it, it gave me this coffee table book, um, to show to people who didn't know who I was. And it was really, you know, it was a very beautiful book. And I think that it also was a, was, or is, um, a good read about people who follow their bliss. And that's always, that's a perennially good story, (laughs) perennially good story. And, um, and so as I said, as you quoted, I have said multiple times, it put me on the map and in the process of writing that book and traveling around the country, I had said to numerous people, you know, someone really needs to do a good kids knitting book. Um, because, the books that are out communicate the information, but not in a way that would be particularly engaging to a child. Um, it certainly wouldn't sell knitting to a child very well. And, um, I remember I 
told Kristen Nicholas she should do that. I told Mike Swanson she should do that. And nobody took me up on it. And so by the time I had finished the first book, I thought, well, I guess I could do that. <laughs> and um, so then that was my next project after writing Knitting in America. And then after that, um, Interweave Knits was looking to kind of... Um, well, they were looking to hire a new editor and change their look a bit. And um, I contacted, I'd heard about the job and I contacted the then owner, Linda Ligon, and told her I was interested in it. So we had a bunch of conversations and I did a little project for her about my vision for the magazine. And so that was positive and they offered me the job, which I took and did for a couple of years. And then... Um, my editor for the first two books, um, she was at Artisan originally, and that's where those two books were pu- uh, published. And then she had moved over to Stuart Tabori and Chang, which then became part of Abrams. And she offered me a job um, acquiring books for them. And they that was when the, that was in, uh, like she started talking to me, I guess in 2002. And the knitting thing was, really hot then. Right. And so they wanted to start, um, well, they didn't actually want to start the imprint immediately, but they wanted to start acquiring more knitting books. In the meantime, I had written another book for them with Kristen Nicholas called Knitting for Baby and it done really well. And they kind of felt like they should pursue this more fully. And they asked me if I wanted to, um, to do that, which I did because I had always wanted to work for a book publisher acquiring books. And so I went to Abrams and then soon after I got there, they said they wanted to sort of make it kind of an official imprint, which is a lot of people don't know what that is, but it's, it's just kind of a brand. And, um, and I've been doing that ever since. So I've actually been working at Abrams longer than I've done any other job except for being a freelancer. (laughs) Wow. Right. So, so that was sort of the birth of Melanie Fallick books as we know yeah. now. And, um, and I, I think it's interesting, you know, to have, so your name is on this imprint and what that does essentially is it, um, it allows a new author, for example, to publish a book and that's exciting because it's new, um, something brand new, new on the scene. Nobody's heard of it yet. could be the next big thing. But with your name behind it, which gives it a track record. Yeah, that was it. Was really the sales department that asked to put my name on it, and um, that was exactly why they wanted to. <laughs> right, right. It's um, you know, it's an interesting thing, right? So now, when you see a book or somebody says, um, "Oh, I got a book deal," and you say, "Well, who's it with?" and they say, "Oh, it's a Melanie Fallick book," immediately everyone knows what that means. Um, and right. So it, it lends this feeling of, oh, you know, that's a quality book. Um, I, I hope, yeah, I think, yeah. I hope it does. I, I think the way the imprint has evolved and, and this is intentional. I really hope that that communicates to people also that it's a very personal relationship between um, the author and me and the publishing house and that it's kind of an intimate collaboration and that. Yeah kind of treat each author very much as an individual. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit actually about, um, about author development. So, um, 
when you work with an author, I know having written two books myself that, you know, as an author, you get this incredible high, you know, when your proposal has been accepted, um, like, oh my gosh, hooray, right? My dream has come true. And then this terrible panic sets in when you start meeting with the editor and you realize I'm going to have to actually write a book now. And, um, these people don't realize it, but I don't know what I'm doing. And I totally am not equipped to do this. Of course you are, but there's just that horrible feeling that comes in. Like this is a year of work ahead of me, you know? Mm -hmm. So when, um, especially when new authors, but I'm imagining even with, um, with veteran authors, how do you help them to sort of structure things to get started? And then even more importantly, to finish the book. Yeah. Well, you know, I feel like it's my job to figure out with each person what is going to bring out the best in them, the best work. And, um, you know, before we even acquire a book, I try to work closely with the author or to communicate with the author and to make sure that we're kind of in sync, that I understand their vision and that I believe in the vision or I understand, I can, I believe in it and I I feel like I can help them to actualize it. And so there is a lot of conversation that typically happens before we've even acquired it. Um, so once we've acquired it, I, I kind of, I know what we're getting into and I think it's very true that there's a, a moment, um, among authors where they say, Oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. Um, and I've acquired the book because I believe that they can do it. And I actually have experienced the, I don't know if I can do this moment more than once in my own life. So I, I know how that feels. And so I feel like I can speak kind of honestly with them about it. And, and usually when we have a conversation about things like that, they're so relieved that they, you know, can tell the truth. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and your perspective, having published many books yourself, having been a first-time author, yeah. doing a project that was pretty out of the ordinary, um, mm-hmm. you know, and having someone take a bet on you, you know, yeah. so you have that perspective. You've been in their shoes, and I think that that's actually fairly unique for an editor. I'm not sure exactly how many editors have really been there like that. Yeah, I do. I don't know either, but I, I think it is. I think fairly unique is probably an accurate description of it, and. You know, the the next part of the process is really just looking at the project as a whole and breaking it down into little pieces. And um, it's kind of like Annie, I always tell people about Annie Lamott's book, um, Bird by Bird. Um, and I think that's the name of the book. I know it's yeah, the name yeah. of that essay. But really that, you know, if you're going to, when you look at something really big, like birds of North America, it seems like, oh my God, I can't do that. But if you look at one bird at a time... <laughs> and you write about one word at a time, you can do that more easily. So that's kind of an equation that I use in life all the time and I share with authors, which is let's just break this down into little pieces. Let's make a schedule of how we think it's going to go and then let's stay in touch. And, you know, for some authors, that's at times once a week. For some, it's more typically like once a month and and it does vary, but we figure out, you know, with their work style, what is going to be the most helpful. And then we keep track of that schedule that we created. And we know throughout the project, 
whether that schedule was crazy, like what were we thinking or whether it was right on or whether it was somewhere in the middle. And then we adjust the schedule as we go to accommodate how the work is flowing. And, um, more often than not, things come in, um, on time or close to on time. We do usually edit as we go so that the manuscript that I receive, let's say 12 months after we've acquired the book is not a surprise to me and doesn't need a huge amount of work. Um, it also, um, gives us a chance in the beginning if a author is submitting material early on for us to kind of agree about, uh, certain aspects of, or a lot of aspects of the content, what it is, how it's written, what our style is going to be in terms of a how to, if there's instructions, you know, we can work out a lot of style issues. We can hire a technical editor, make sure that the chemistry between the technical editor and the author is good. Um, you know, have somebody else kind of keeping an eye on the whole thing. And so, um, it usually works. And when it doesn't, we don't, I don't find that out you know, a few weeks or a few days before the deadline, if it's not working and the author say it needs more time, we figure that out early, you know, maybe six months before the deadline when, when nobody needs to panic, when there still typically is some flexibility on when we're going to publish that book. You know, if it's a fall book, it would usually be published sometime between September and December. So maybe we were planning September and we're going to switch it to December, or maybe we're going to move it to the spring list and publish it in February. I have a certain amount of flexibility early on in the process that I don't have later in the process. (laughs) So again, you know, just like I try to create a communication where the author feels comfortable saying, I'm terrified. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why you acquire this book. <laughs> um, I want them to feel comfortable saying like, I don't know if I'm going to finish on time, but I want them to feel comfortable telling me that six months ahead of time, not six days. <laughs> right. And I, um, I'm interested to hear that you edit as you go. I think that's actually really interesting. And um, the amount of communication that you have with your authors as well, it seems um, well, I don't know, I guess from my own experience with other publishers, it just seems, uh, really sort of hand, a little more hands-on, um, definitely a little more sort of, um, uh, working together, um, yeah. which is, I, I think is terrific. Um, and it shows, you know, I mean, it, it shows in the final product and, um, and that's how that, that's how that high level product is achieved, you know? Um, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, authors want sort of a different level of, or you know, of hands-on and that's, you know, I try to figure that out. So people, some people want to be micromanaged and they welcome that and some people don't, but, you know, I just try to know enough about what they're doing to know that we're going to meet the deadline and that we're going to produce a good book. Right. Absolutely. So, all right. So for people who, um, who might not, uh, sort of know all the ins and outs, let's talk just a little bit about, um, the mechanics of bringing a book to market. So, um, how many books, first of all, does um, Melanie Fallick books make each year? Um, well, I should say, just to be clear, if you, it's, it, the name of the imprint is a little bit confusing. It is STC Craft Melanie Fallick Books, which okay. I, it may actually change soon, but oh. um, don't worry about that for now. But <laughs> STC, originally, I worked, our company was Stuart Taborian Chang, and so that's where the STC comes from. So it's STC Craft and then Melanie Fallick Books, but we're all part of Abrams books. And, um, 
So some people just look it up as STC craft and anyway, so I just wanted to clarify, but, um, now remind me what were you, what were you oh, so we were talking about bringing, um, a book to market and how many books you produce oh, right. in a year. So, um, it varies. It's probably between 10 and 16. Okay. Okay. So that's not that many, you know, I mean, I think people might realize, not realize that it's really just a few. It's a, it's a select few in a year. And mm-hmm. how many proposals come through your door? I know in craft publishing, it's not the same as fiction publishing where, you know, an editor has this huge slush pile of unsolicited yeah. manuscripts that's, you know, toppling over their desk that never get looked at. Um, and that you, you know, absolutely have to have an agent to be able to even get somebody to look at what you, what you have. It's not like that in craft, but, no. but there are no, definitely but- proposals coming in. So, so how many would you say come in and, you know, do you really look at all of them? Yeah. You know, I've never counted and, um, proposals come in and a a lot of different ways. Um, yeah, not even like, you know, I'm like maybe 30 or 40 in a year. Okay. Um, it's a little bit hard to, to say, I'm like, is that how many I get? But I always, interestingly, I always get a lot in January because I think a lot of people are January or February, you know, they, they sort of decide I'm going to do it this year. Uh huh. And so I'll get a lot then. And, um, yeah, I mean, they, they come in, like sometimes it's just a conversation with someone that leads to a book proposal that's really short, like a paragraph or really long, like 20 or 30 pages. Um, sometimes they come from agents. Sometimes they come from, you know, somebody who knows somebody. It's lots of different ways, um, and I, and I welcome them all and, and we do read them all. I mean, as it's not that many, um, there are certain signs that you can pick up on pretty quickly to figure out, um, if you're likely to be interested in it. Okay. So let's talk about what those signs might be. Well, obviously we want things that are, we think are beautiful and that, you know, fit the look of the imprint. Um, and we really need authors who have a marketing platform. Um, we need authors with new ideas, fresh and fresh and, or a fresh perspective on an old idea. Um, and we need people who, um, kind of know how to present their idea in a way that, Let's see, present their idea really clearly. So, for example, if I get um, a proposal and I can't even figure out what the book is about, <laughs> that might be a problem. If I get a proposal and there's photos of, let's say, projects in it and I'm not crazy about the projects, um, you know, that isn't a a sign that it might not be something that I want to look at. I might get a proposal from someone who has, you know, a billion Instagram followers and that will perk me up. Um, you know, sometimes people make such a beautiful presentation and the book itself, the idea itself is fabulous. And sometimes they make a beautiful presentation and it's really not right for us, but a beautiful presentation will catch my attention. Right. And as you said, so will a billion Instagram followers. And I actually think 
So that's an interesting point because I think there probably was a time in craft publishing when having your own audience, I'm talking from the author's perspective, um, you know, wasn't necessarily a requirement. Or maybe you had a local audience because you've been teaching quilting or knitting, you know, in your local area for, you know, years and years. And so you had that. But having a, an international global audience um, certainly wasn't something that was expected. But now, um, to what degree do you feel like an author absolutely has to come in with, you know, this this really large and loyal following online. And um, and I am also sort of wondering whether you ever get, you know, a beautiful presentation and of a great idea from someone who doesn't have that, and then you feel like, gosh, I'm going to have to pass only because the likelihood of this selling from an unknown person, you know, it just might not fly. So, yeah. yeah. Well, everything you said is is true. Um, it's, it, it saddens me a little bit because, um, we're not all extroverts. <laughs> I'm certainly not. And yet, you know, to have a big marketing platform, you have to be either an extrovert or willing to sort of overcome your shyness, um, in one way or another. And it never used to be this way. I mean, it used to be that a book was kind of a launching pad and that's how you became really well known. It used to be that a publisher wanted to see that you had published some work or you had, you know, maybe somehow gotten yourself on television. Um, you know, that was always good stuff. If you taught around the country or, you know, you had fans, but it wasn't integral. It was really more about you had a great idea. And then the book was what publicized that idea. And it's really flipped. And now you certainly still need a good idea, um, but more than anything, you have to have the ability to reach your audience. You have to have an audience out there, people who are looking for what you do, people who are following you. And it, it would be wrong to say that we wouldn't publish anything if the person didn't have a platform, and, but we do that less often now than we did in the past. Yeah, and so... You know, the time that we spend as, um, you know, craftspeople building that online audience, it is valuable time because, you know, sometimes it can sort of feel like, oh, you're wasting all your time on Instagram, you know, yeah. <laughs> or, or why are you sitting on Twitter all day long, you know? Um, but I think that there is some value in, in re rethinking that for yourself to say, I, you know, I pin on Pinterest for work, you know, right. I pin for work because you know, I need to have, you know, 20,000 Pinterest followers. This is an important part of my job. It is not just, oh, pretty picture, you know? Yeah, it's true. And I think it's, it's hard though to figure out how to make that work. And I think if you're sort of going on and you don't, you're going on Pinterest or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and you don't have like a real passion for what you're doing for the subject matter that you're exploring, then that will come through. And I don't think that would be very personally, um, satisfying. And I, I think it wouldn't be necessarily the best recipe to get a book deal. Um, but if you, you know, if you go on and, and you're, you know, sort of like back to that knitting in America thing, like here I was this really shy person who didn't seem to have a problem calling strangers because I had, um, 
so much confidence in my idea and so much commitment to making it happen. And, um, so I think it's really important to use the social media tools that way. I should also say that, um, another thing that people do that's a little more old school is there are people who still travel around the country, you know, teaching at conferences and teaching at shops and they can build a pretty big audience that way. So it's not just the social media, but that certainly is a a component of it. Yeah. Okay. So I mentioned to an agent that I know that I would be talking with you and she told me, Melanie has added so much insight to all the projects I've worked with her on that they're truly enhanced versions of the book I pitched to her. So I thought that was really interesting. Once you've taken on an author and you've looked at the proposal, the proposal um, in the author's platform, et cetera, has really caught your eye. You've decided, you know, to pitch this to your pub board and they're on it. So you're going to go with this book. Um, how do you, or maybe this happens before the pitch to the pub board, I guess, um, how do you develop that idea? You know, as an author, you think, okay, this would be a great book. You write up this proposal, but sometimes there's a lot of back and forth to develop the idea further and to really make it into the book that it becomes. Yeah. So that was a nice thing that that agent said. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you know, part of it happens before we acquire the book, because as I was saying earlier, I have to really believe in it and understand what the author wants. I want it to be a win-win. You know, I do hear from authors, not that work with us, but work with other publishers, you know, oh gosh, you know, they don't like their publisher. They never knew their editor. They only heard from him or her once in a year or their editor changed three times and, you know, all sorts of stories and about that of being kind of an impersonal experience where an author kind of felt like their, their idea was sort of taken away. And I think, um, I used to say, you know, you write this book and then you hand it in and sometimes you know, you feel like you've been treated like this person that was able to sort of give birth to this baby and then that you're, it's torn away from you as if you're an unfit mother. Um, That's so interesting. And that is very true for many, many people, unfortunately, who write books, especially yeah. books. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of like, I guess I, you could say that the conversations that we have um, before we acquire the book are, you know, kind of mutually the author figuring out if they, would feel comfortable working with us and, and, and I'm, and me, and I'm figuring out if I would feel comfortable working with them. And I have to make sure that they have this idea that they're nurturing, that they really, really care about. And do I understand their idea? Do they kind of understand, um, do they know how they want this idea presented? Like how much do they know? Sometimes I ask people about like what they imagine their book looking like and they could tell me, you know, go on and on for half an hour. And other people have no idea what it, they think it should look like. And in fact, I've never even thought about that. So, you know, we try to talk about the book as whole, a whole thing, you know, not just an idea, but the actual physical book. And, um, and then once um, we've acquired the book and, um, then it's just that communication that I spoke about earlier. And, you know, when you have an idea, I know I had the experience when I was writing, um, a proposal for the first couple of books that I did. Um, I would start writing the proposal and then all these other ideas would come to me. And I almost like couldn't type fast enough because they were pouring out of me. And I was thinking like I started out with, you know, this one seed of an idea and then it was kind of blooming into all sorts of other things. And I think that 
that happens during the proposal process or during, you don't even have to call it proposal. If you just sort of sit down and try to like articulate on paper or on a computer screen, what you want to do, it brings about more ideas and helps you to see whether it's going to kind of hold up. And then as you're working, stuff happens. So you might have kind of an outline when you start, and we always have an outline when we start, but sometimes, you know, we make a right turn or a left turn, or we, you know, figure out some great addition or subtraction. Um, And so because there's all that communication, we have that time for that collaboration and brainstorming and sharing of possibilities. And so I just try to be really engaged in that process so that in the end, um, we have the best book that we could possibly have and um, that the author and I are in agreement about that. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a big difference Um, because the books you create with your team are beautiful. I mean, they're beautiful to touch, to look at, they're beautiful to read, you know, and they're beautiful to make things from. And I wonder how much your desire to make craft books that are at such a high level of production comes from a feeling that you have that craft is sort of seen as women's work or as domestic and sort of therefore not something to be taken seriously. And if there's sort of a feminist piece here as well. Yeah. Um, well, there certainly is a feminist piece to my perspective. Um, and I, I do see, um, the way that craft is regarded, um, as women's work affecting how it's presented and how it's, um, how even like the stores and present it and how people regard it. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I want to give it its due. <laughs> I want to, I like our books, you know, I like the imprint to represent beauty and brains. So, you know, we, we take it seriously. Um, even if it's, you know, I don't know, like a whimsical idea. I'm not saying that everything we do is like brain science or something, but we take what we do really seriously and we try to do our best. And, um, we try to celebrate what people are making with their hands and the ways in which they're being creative and off more often than not, I'm working with women and, um, sometimes I'm working with women who, are reluctant to, um, celebrate what they're doing in a true way or to, to think big about what they're doing. And, you know, I try to make sure that we're, we're thinking big about it and we're, (laughs) it's hard to, and thank you for that because there, I mean, that's, I think that's really important work. And I think that that contribution of showing the value of, knitting and sewing and craft in general, that it is something for real. And it is something that should be, you know, produced at this level. Um, I think that's just a fantastic, uh, contribution to what's, what's been out there before. Yeah. One of the things I'm really struggling with right now is, um, the word craft versus the word maker versus the, I guess it's an acronym DIY. Um, I feel like in recent years, now that, you know, 
crafting or making or DIY, it's become like the hip thing to do that the word craft is suffering again. <laughs> People will be like, oh, I'm not a crafter. You know, I'm a maker or I'm a DIY. I, I do DIY because that's kind of cooler. And um, just trying to kind of figure that out. And I don't know if your audience, anybody else thinks about that, but I feel like that does go back to sort of this idea that, you know, craft is, you know, for unimportant females. Yeah. (laughs) Craft is is lesser, right? It doesn't count. And it's something little kids can do. It's something obvious. It's Mm -hmm. cheap. It's, you know, pom-poms and Elmer's glue and glitter. And right. that's what it means. And so it's arts and crafts, right? Yeah. <laughs> like camp. Um, yeah, totally. And um, it, it, that word, it's interesting. I think that's an interesting point. It's kind of come full circle. It went from being those things that I just mentioned to being cool. And now it's sort of back again. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I fine, I'll call it making, I'll call it DIY, but I just feel like what's underneath that? Like, have we, (laughs) that's what I'm, it's, it just sort of feels like if you're young and hip and cool, what you do matters. And, you know, I don't, I just feel like being young or old or hip or not hip, it should just, we should just be looking at what you're making with your hands. Yeah. I wrote a blog post not long ago and I, in which I described myself as a crafter and, um, another sewing pattern designer said to me, you're not a crafter, you're a designer. Or um, I mean, a sewist. <laughs> you're a sewist, right? You're a designer. Like, don't use that word. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know it's like interesting. Um, so, so, okay. So you filmed, um, a couple of classes for creative bug and I, um, I think that video is really a wonderful way to learn a new craft mm-hmm. and creative bug classes in particular are beautifully shot and produced much like, um, an STC Melanie phallic book. So, um, I just wonder what that experience was like for you to, I mean, you've mentioned that you're an introvert. Um, but, uh, so what was it like for you to, to make these creative bug, uh, videos? Oh, you know, it- it was fun. I mean, I, I've had to do, you know, in, back to like my background and my, my first book, I traveled around the country and interviewed all of these people. And I didn't mention, but I've done a lot of in the past freelance writing for different magazines and that required a lot of interview skills. And then when I did my book tour stuff, I had to be on TV and be on the radio. And so I can, I just think it's kind of funny that I'm introverted, but I have to be extroverted sometimes. Um, and so I really wasn't worried about being on camera. You know, the preparation for those classes is very intense and it was really hard. It was a very busy time. So, you know, there's like the creative bug people who hear this will be like, Oh, she's making it sound like it was all roses, but she was kind of had a few complaints, um, <laughs> at the time. Um, but I was really happy to do them. I did four classes. Um, and, uh, the, my, my favorite was probably the beaded wrap bracelets, which was these leather bracelets with beads on them because I really wanted to make them and I really wanted to sort of learn how to do it well. And, um, and I wanted to share that because a lot of people like those bracelets, they, but, um, it was fun. And yeah. I, I liked working with creative bug because I knew that, um, they did beautiful work and a lot of the people there were so welcoming and kind and make you feel really comfortable. Um, and I want to be part of what's happening 
now and part of um, how our industry is evolving. And um, so it was great. It was, yeah. it was great. I mean, you know, the, it was hard to do four classes in two days. And, you know, I did <laughs> cry in the bathroom at one point because I was so exhausted. But I was thrilled that they asked me and thrilled to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I'd be interested to see, as you said, like, this is what's happening now. And, you know, um, and I want to talk about digital uh, publishing, but I, I guess I feel like video lends itself so well to teaching skills like making beaded wrap bracelets, for example. And I feel like, you know, going forward with digital publishing, with making eBooks that are really and truly eBooks, you know, really and truly books that are electronic, where you can have embeddable video like that, you know, high quality, high definition video like that from the author within the book to show a particular technique, you know, or a portion of a project. I mean, that's really exciting to me. Yeah, it is to me too. I would love to be doing stuff like that. Um, It's really such a challenging time to be in book publishing because the ground is shifting beneath us and, um, you know, who's going to be left standing? (laughs) That's the question. Um, I love physical books and, um, and I don't want to lose them, but everything about what we publish and how we publish is and needs to change to accommodate how our culture is evolving in general and how our technology is evolving. And, you know, just hearing you talk about how interesting eBooks are because of, you know, the opportunity to do the embeddable video, I thought, Oh, that would be so amazing. I would love to do that. And I think what we really need to figure out how to do is to partner, um, you know, people who are involved with editorial with people who have the technological skills to embed that video. And I think there's a little bit of a disconnect still in it because if you talk to a traditional publisher, they're not um, always so savvy about how to make kind of digital stuff happen. And, you know, I, th- I think like, oh, well, who could, you know, I'll do all the content, but who can help me with those videos and how they get embedded and how that gets up on the internet and how that gets distributed? You know, there's a lot of process in there that is a little bit um, intimidating. But um, if there's anybody out there who knows how to do that, please. Yeah. <laughs> call or email. Right. To me, this is where the opportunity is right here, right in that spot where, I mean, there are people who are fully capable of doing that. There are firms that this is all they do, um, is create, you know, high quality eBooks that have sort of all of these things embedded in there. And there are people, as we know, who create gorgeous video and there are people who create fantastic content, um, you know, whether craft instruction content, photos, layout, et cetera. So, um, so we just, this is, we need the coming together here because. Yeah. And I think what I've, the stories that I've heard from the book publishing world is that the customer is not willing to pay for all those extras. Um, so, and that, and I think maybe even calling it extras is part of the problem. Yeah. If you're, let's say you and I do a book and it's a physical book and, you know, it's 160 pages and it has the greatest projects ever. And then we make an ebook edition that also has video that goes with it. Well, what book publishers, traditional book publishers are finding is that video costs money. And 
but the consumer doesn't want to pay more than they would pay for the physical book for that content. So then it's like, okay, well that equation doesn't really work. So how do we change that? Are we doing direct ebook, like no physical book, just the ebook? Right. And then how does that work? Like, how do we make it so that it's a win-win for the publisher of the material, whether that's like a piece of paper or on your screen and as well as the consumer where the consumer wants to pay for it. And that is probably the biggest question. What does the consumer want to pay for? Because I would do this for nothing if I could somehow live, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, I would say I would do it for absolutely nothing, but kind of, I mean, I love this. And if I had all, you know, if I just didn't have to worry about money, I would love to just like, create these videos with you and create beautiful books. But the truth of the matter is that's not how this society works. So there is so much available on the internet free. And um, what can we create that people want to pay for? Right. That doesn't involve a physical product or, or is sort of, um, replicating in some way a physical product, you know? Yeah. So, right. Cause if you're, if you're used to consuming, you know, web pages for free and YouTube videos for free, um, it's a difficult hurdle to then say, yeah. well, I'm going to buy a product that's going to contain those things. It's like, well, am I really going to pay 24 95 Right. Mm-hmm. Or more, you know, 50, and you might 50. even say like, yeah, I know that that book from that ebook from Abby with all those videos embedded in it is great. Like I've heard she's a fantastic teacher and it's twenty four ninety five. So, you know what, I'll go on YouTube and just search around and see what I find. And maybe it won't be the easiest experience, but I'll learn how to do that. You know, I'll learn how to sew that, um, right. Animal or bird or something. <laughs> Right, 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 right. So, so for me, um, for let's just talking back about the, the physical product of books. Um, so what kinds uh, in this environment that's very pressured and is, as you said, the ground is shifting, what kind of craft books are going to be here to stay? I mean, what craft books are, are really going to endure through this storm? You know, my first answer, I don't know if it sounds sarcastic, but it's like, and I don't want it to, but I'll, and I'll elaborate in another way, but it's really the books people are going to pay for. Those are the ones that are going to last. So the consumer is going to make that decision, um, about what's going to endure. Um, you know, I, as part of STC craft, um, you know, we're exploring some different things, um, trying to kind of figure it out. The biggest or one of the biggest challenges we have aside from the fact that there's so much content that can be acquired without paying for it online. Um, so we don't need craft books the way we did in the past. Um, so what do we need and what do we want, um, is the question. And, you know, we were exploring different things and, um, it seems like, I got a little off track, but the way we buy books is differently and the way we discover them is, is different. So it used to be that we would go to the bookstore and sit on the floor and, you know, under the, in the craft department and pull them all off the shelves. And that's how we would discover them. But that's not happening so much anymore. It used to be that we'd go to the yarn store to buy yarn and we'd flip through all these books and magazines and then we'd pick a book or a magazine to buy and we'd buy our yarn. That's not happening anymore. So as a result, we don't have as many bookstores, bookstores we have don't have as many craft books. We don't have as many magazines, um, and we have yarn stores that don't want to sell books 
often because they don't want to compete with Amazon. So how are people finding out about books? You know, we have to, the books that are going to last are the ones that we can get out there, you know, we can get the word out about. And I'm finding that um, in the physical world, people are still going into stores and there are sort of gift stores that are happy to sell books as part of kind of a bigger story. So um, there's, they seem sort of interested in kind of, if they're going to sell a blender, then they'll sell a book about using the blender or. <laughs> or like anthropology who will sell a beautiful book next to the sweaters. Right. And it, you know, for them, it's like, Oh, the cover of that book, it color wise matches the color story they have going on in the store right now. So, you know, one thing I started to think about is like, what would this, what could this book sell next to? Um, also in the, when I talked about gift stores, you know, it's, you could say that's anthropology or William Sonoma or, um, you know, this cute boutique in Brooklyn that has a very curated selection. Um, so it's, you know, those are stores that are going to shy away from a, a book that requires a high level of skill probably. Right. You know, so, you know, our imprint is broadening to include more crafts and more kind of expressions of creativity that you might not define as a traditional craft. We're going beyond, you know, the needlework that has been our bread and butter for a really long time. And we've also started doing, um, and I should say, you know, going beyond it, like we've, um, paper flowers, which is obviously not needlework. We've done a bunch of books that were kind of, uh, like doodle books where there you have prompts in them, um, that help you to sort of hone your personal expression and your drawing skills. We've published some books, um, reading books from people who, um, are known in the creative world. For example, how to catch a frog by Heather Ross. It's really kind of a memoir with a DIY theme throughout it. We did, um, the yarn. By the way, that book was, I loved that book. Uh, I loved it. So, Oh, good. (laughs) Um, yeah, we did the yarn whisperer by Clara Parks, which is, you know, a book of essays, um, where she writes in kind of a heartfelt and very, um, funny way about the role knitting and yarn have played in her life. We did, um, living color by Natalie Goldberg, um, who is best known as an amazing writing teacher. Um, you might know her book, Writing Down the Bones. And then this book is about her writing practice and her painting practice and about kind of creativity in general. Um, the I feel like those books right now are among my favorites to work on, um, probably because they're newer for me. And so um, it's always fun to learn something new and explore something new. Um, there's They're not selling as with as much enthusiasm as I'm supporting them, (laughs) I should say. Um, So that's one thing we're trying. And I I hope everybody who um, hears this will read those books because they're fabulous. But, you know, we're like, it's like, what do people want? That's the question. And um, that's what's going to endure. And, and I wish I had, you know, I could say to you, yes, in five years, this will be this kind of book. Because if I could answer what books are going to endure (laughs) and what books are going to sell, my job would be, a whole lot easier. Right. It's always that gamble. And the gamble is especially big now because things have changed and are currently changing just so dramatically. Yeah. And I just welcome anyone, you, Abby, or anybody who's listening to this, if you have something to share and can tell me 
what you really think you want to consume. I mean, I think about it in my own reading habits and my own book buying habits. I'm buying fewer books than I used to. And I almost feel like the whole ebook thing is like confusing and it like, I, do I want this as a real book? Do I want this as an ebook? And I can't really decide. So then I don't buy anything. Um, if you know what you love and you know the form in which you love to consume it, then consume it because that's what will endure. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and how can people um, get in touch with you, Melanie, if they have some ideas that they want to share? They can email me. Um, it's M Fallick, so M F A L I C K at abramsbooks.com. And Abrams is A B R A M S books.com. And that's my personal work email. And um, I'm on Instagram as Melanie Fallick, and there's also an STC Craft Instagram, and same thing on Facebook and Twitter, and what are the other ones? I don't remember. All over the place. <laughs> All over the place. Yeah. So we typically there's a, I do one that's a little bit more personal, but still work, as you said, for your you know Pinterest or Instagram. So there's Melanie Fallick, and then there's STC Craft, and we usually represent ourselves as both. Got it. Okay, perfect. So, um, Melanie, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Wall Street Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, you're welcome. I really like your podcast, and I really appreciate you asking me to be here. And you've been listening to the Wall Street Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, wallstreetnaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.